few good men with Murray Jones, sharing stories of the unexpected journeys men have experienced when raising children with disabilities that need lifelong support. This is where men should really talk more to each other. And our world changed forever that day, and it's never been the same since. Make the most of what you've got. They are your kids. Look after them. Do the best you can. Told you I wasn't going to cry today, mate. <laughs> Everyone has the ability to have a ripple effect in whatever way they choose to. Which is where your concept of a few good men, I believe, has hugely to enable us men to handle it better. A Few Good Men, sponsored by Help Enterprises, a social enterprise helping people with disabilities lead fulfilling and independent lives. Welcome to A Few Good Men. I'm Murray Jones, a dad who knows firsthand that a disability diagnosis is just the start of an unexpected journey that changes the course of your life. Raising a child with autism has taught me lessons in resilience, love and understanding, but it has also been a challenging, sometimes lonely path. My experience has inspired me to let other men in similar situations know that they're not alone. When Scott became the primary caregiver for his nephew, he recognised the lack of digital resources available for the four and a half million Australians who identify as having a disability, and the support staff who are on the front lines daily. He made it his mission to change that. Scott Chapman is a man whose drive and compassion knows no bounds. Seeing Dan navigate the world made Scott realise something was missing, digital wellness content specifically for people with disabilities. So he founded Able Digital Wellness, in this episode, Scott's going to share more about his bond with Dan, why he started Able Digital Wellness, and why he believes in a world where everyone is treated equally. G'day, hey, Scott. Dan. How you going? Good, mate. Good. Thanks for coming in. Thank you for having me. Being on The Few Good Men. Long-time listener, first-time caller. Long-time listener, first-time caller. <laughs> well, thanks for calling in, mate. And your story is quite unique. I know you're a very good man. Thank you're, you. You're doing some great stuff out there in the community. But first of all, tell us about how you came to be in the role of carer for your nephew. Yep. Most of the blokes we're talking to are actually fathers, so your story is actually... It's a little different. It is a little different. It's probably one of those same, same, but different, right? Because it's, it doesn't really matter if you're an uncle, brother, mother, father, it kind of ends up being the same, right? And the end goal is to have the best outcome for that individual that you can. The fortunate part is mum and dad have taken a lot of the load, if you will, when it comes to caring for my nephew. But in the most recent years, because of their age as well, it's been great opportunity for me to step in and, and try and make sure that the care provisions he's getting now are the best that they can be forever, you know. So he grew up in Stanthorpe, regional community in, in southeast Queensland with mum and dad, and then in the last four years has moved into his own seal on the Gold Coast. So he's got his independence and he's mm-hmm. living his best life, and it's that in itself comes with a whole bunch of challenges for, for him and for me and for mum and dad and, and navigating the, the world of disability. Just to sort of go back a step, so he's your nephew, he's your sister's, sister's son, yeah, son right? Yeah. And obviously she's the yeah she had a lot of troubles her and her partner um, and, you know. when she was when she was growing up through through a whole different industry in child sex abuse unfortunately which kind of put her on a path of destruction she had two kids um, one of which lives without a disability one does the fortunate thing for her was I had the most accommodating parents in the world who then took on the role of of raising both of her sons from a very young age while she was trying to get a life in order yeah. For Dan, that was probably the best thing that could have ever happened because he was in a really stable, loving, caring kind of environment. So that yeah. really set foundations for, for his, his future life. So Dan lived with your mum and dad for a period? From birth, yeah. Oh, from birth? Yeah, from birth oh, until wow. 
until 18 when he transitioned into his first seal on the Gold Coast. Being in a small town, it was the life of the town, you know, like mm. having disability in the right areas where people accept you for who you are because you're a fun and jovial kind of person was awesome for him. The biggest transition, I think, was when he moved here and he went from being a fun-loving kid to an awkward teenager with the cognitive capacity of someone a lot younger. It's very difficult for people to accept him for who he wanted to be. For your mum and dad to take that on is a big thing. Oh, you, yes. You've already you've raised your kids, you've gone, and then yeah. and then we're back to square one doing it again. So that's that's, right. that's massive. Huge undertaking. Yeah. But, you know, they wouldn't have had it any other way, and, and that's been a, a great, like you said, apprenticeship for me to go, life's about what more can you do, not about what you can just do for yourself. And if you can find ways to help those around you, then if everyone did their 1%, Murray, the world would be a lot better place, right? So if we can all kind of learn from each other in that regard. And, you know, I want my kids to definitely grow up with the same kind of attitude. And that is, if at any point in time they can help someone, then they will do so. Well, you're certainly setting an example. So he's, he's lived with your mum and dad, then what moved to Brisbane as a teenager, did he? No, straight to the Gold Coast. Oh, straight to the Gold yeah, Coast. Okay. Straight from Stanthorpe. To the Gold Coast, into a sill with three Straight other... into that. So from your mum, they, they just got to the stage for yeah, this time. Yeah, he's, he's got a lot of complex behavioural issues and Dan's quite big. He's nearly six foot and at that stage he's about 80 kilos and mum and dad were pushing 65 and Dan could have outbursts and some of them got physical sometimes. So he was just too challenging for mum and dad. But we also wanted to, they didn't obviously want to just cut him off. So we tried to work out at that point was navigating the NDIS right at the start of the NDIS and going, well, what can we do here to try and give him the life that he deserves, but still be really involved and active in his life. And that was when, you know, mum again, to her credit as a 65 year old country woman who had worked at the local RSL most of her life had then taught herself what is the NDIS and how can we try and utilize this to help him live his best life. So that's kind of where that journey then then started. I'd moved away well before that. So I was still in regular contact and saw him, but it wasn't until he came to the Gold Coast where I was living that I was able to get more involved in his life. Did he come to the Gold Coast because you were living there or not? Yeah, it was partly the plan that I'd set with mum and dad from a younger age was you'll get to the point where you can't care for him anymore. And unfortunately, whilst his mother wants to have some involvement in his life, she's probably not in the best frame or the best place to still do that. Dan's brother, Nathan, and myself are the closest family that he will continue to have. And he's very much a part of my family. My kids love him. My wife does as well. So we wanted him to be nearer to us so that at the God forbid the point in time my mum and dad aren't with us anymore. Dan never had to worry because he's got me and my wife and our family there with him as well. So that navigation through the NDIS, your mum did that? Did, yeah, she did the yeah. start of that, yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and you know, again, yeah. to her credit, mum had never used a computer before. Now all of a sudden she was trying to deal with local area yeah. coordinators and support coordinators and yeah. providers. And, and it was the early, the early days early too days, of NDIS. Yeah. So he's transitioned into the support and independent living home. How did that go? Were you sort of keeping an eye on him and monitoring yeah. his progress or, or Definitely, settling you know, the And I think partly because of what happened to my sister when she was young, the biggest fear that I had of him leaving mum and dad was not having a voice and not being able to communicate how he felt or how he was being treated or the environment that he was in. And I always was terrified that he was going to either be abused or neglected in some way, shape or form. Mm. It was always my biggest fear. And I'm a kind of really fight or flight sort of person sometimes. I don't have much of a middle ground sometimes, which is a bit of a weakness of mine, but I would always approach that situation with, I want to understand where he is. I want to understand who's looking after him. I want to understand what it is that they're doing in there because Dan can't tell me if he's sore. He can't tell me if he's sick. He can't tell me if he's upset. He can't communicate that well. Is he is limited, well, limited he's, he's, verbal. He's, he's yeah. definitely verbal and you can have a conversation with him, but yeah. you know, Dan shows any emotion other than happiness. So whether it's 
fear or frustration or whether he's upset all in one frame and that's kind of shut down. If anything had actually happened to him at a point in time, it would be very challenging for him to communicate that to us. So for me, getting involved early when he went to the SIL wasn't around how does his plan fulfill requirements in the SIL and what do we need to do there? It was more Hey, Mr. Support Worker, who are you? What's your name and what's your background? More of an interrogation specialist probably than a, yeah. than a disability specialist. It's not the same carer though, every single... No, it wasn't. And that, so you've you got, know, to do, you got to do a few interrogations. Yeah, and yeah. I had no exposure to the disability sector right prior to that. So it was a real eye-opener for me, I suppose. Firstly, seeing just people who are carers, like people who are support workers, going in every single day and providing care for people like my nephew. Like I take my hats off to them every day. No, I make this very special, but yeah. And, but at the same time, like I saw the system and the way small and even large-scale providers are forced to work sometimes and the rotation of staff means that there's very minimal consistency, right? So you take this, I still refer to Dan as a kid unintentionally a lot of the time. You know, you take this kid in a man's body who has lived with his grandparents his whole life and he's probably slightly detached and has separation anxiety from his mum anyway and you plonk him into a new house with three guys that he doesn't really know or didn't really choose to live with, being cared for by probably 14 people on rotation who he also didn't necessarily choose to care for him and you add in a significant cognitive disability into that and you go, shit, how does he go to sleep every night? Like, is he literally crying himself to sleep and mm-hmm. is he worried? Is he happy? Is he? And, and being able to, you know, look into the sill from the outside is nearly impossible with any provider that you're with. Yeah. Told you I wasn't going to cry today, mate. <laughs> and, and have him have everything that he wants, but that's also mm. not a reality sometimes, mm. right? One of the big things for me from day one was always around the support staff and matching of environments, right? So it, it was really about going, how do these people, mum and dad never had issues with Dan, right? At home, there was very, very minimal behavioral issues that he had on a weekly basis. Yeah. So why is he now having five to 10 behavioral reports on a weekly basis? How much of that is environmental? How much of that is just the people around him just don't understand who he is. Yeah. They don't understand the best way to deal with his quirks and some of his outbursts. And is he matched with the best people? I went on a bit of a quest at that point to learn about the sector as a whole. And because again, as I said, I wasn't from the sector, but learn no. about it as a whole. And you know, Never what, been exposed to the sector never, before. Never, never no. prior. I hadn't yep. even read his plan. Like he hadn't even read Dan's NDIS plan. Yep. So how does that plan get him into the house? How does you know, the budget lines within there then give him support in and around his life to make sure that he's happy. But importantly, all of that aside, how do we make sure that the people who are beside him 24-7, giving him the same values that my parents were giving him at home, giving him the same love, and you'll never love him the same as what we did, right? And we get Mm. that. Yeah. But how do you make him feel like you do? How do you make him feel like he's part of a family in that environment? Because it should never be, I am your support worker, I am your carer, I am your staff. Yeah. It should be... We're here and we're here together. And that's that's really kind of where the Able Digital Wellness, the business that I created, that journey started in terms of how can we provide content and resources to individuals, but also to support workers to make sure that people are living happy, healthy lives. Because one of the biggest things is activity and nutrition and poor eating. And I mean, you know yourself, if you have a rubbish week and you eat a bunch of takeaway and you've drunk a bunch of beers or a heap of soft drink or whatever the case may be, you feel like shit. And if you feel feel that way, then you're not going to be happy the next day. And if you're not happy, generally the people around you will cop the brunt of that and that's a cycle, right? Mm. Choice and control is awesome. Dan had it and was taking it out of control and we couldn't rein it in. So how how was he, I remember you told me once, there was a a moment, wasn't there, where you you rang him and he, what are you up to, mate? And he's... It was the number of them. Like, and the first yeah. one was the weight gain, right? So he put on 30 kilos in 
six months or thereabouts. So he's gone from 80 when he went into yeah, over like to, to north of 100. Yeah. And it was pretty much because he'd wake up and he would be anxious of a morning. He'd get up earlier than anyone else. So he'd eat half a block of cheese and drink two ginger beers. And then the support staff would wake up and be like, mate, what are you doing? We want to try and eat healthier. And, and Dan would say no, and that'd be it, right? Well, he said, no, it's choice and control. What do you want us to do? And it wasn't until we started to really notice this significant weight gain and then behavioral issues were reoccurring as a result of that. I basically went and knocked on the door of the provider and went, well, what are we doing here, right? And again, at that stage, I keep referring back to, I hadn't had a lot of exposure to the industry, right? So I didn't yeah. even know what choice and control was. Yeah. My view was I went in and I'm like, you, you can't let him do that. And they're like, well, we're not allowed to stop him doing that. And I'm like, well, that's obscene. Like, hmm. If he's not cognitively able to control his finances, then surely he can't be allowed to choose whether he drinks a beer for breakfast or not. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And don't get me wrong, I'm all for choice and control. Yeah, like but there, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's whole, a fine line, you know. It's, it's a really, yeah. That's because a, we have to make sure topic. that, huge topic, because, yeah. because Dan's entitled to choice and control without a shadow of a doubt, but yeah. without the correct guidance around him, that choice and control is deadly. The statistic around people like him with a cognitive disability in their age span you know, it's directly relevant, in my opinion, to that. Because yeah. the average person like him, unless they're living at home, they are in a supported independent living environment or some kind of facility, for lack of a better word, like that. Mm. If the people around them are not focusing on activity for themselves or exercise or they don't eat well or they smoke or they're heavy drinkers, yeah. that is literally what we're then imparting onto our family unintentionally. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that was the turning point for me was seeing that. And then when I spoke to the support staff, it was, well, well, what do we do? We don't know what else to do here. And I'm like, well, how do you not know what else to do? Like there's, there's a million things we can do. To give you an example, ginger beer went to, let's get him a ginger and apple juice. And then ginger and apple juice, we got him a soda stream and that turned into a, because it was all sensory, right? Like he yeah, wanted yeah. the bubbles. Yeah, so he wanted the bubbles, yeah. Into that. And then we got him onto ginger and lemon kombucha. So then we transitioned it from something bad into something that was also no sugar, but promoting good gut health for him. Mm. So there's a million things you can do. It's just a matter of thinking outside of the box. And Unfortunately, a lot of the time with the way these environments are set up, you don't think like a family member of, I need to find another way to direct his attention. You kind of go, well, I've got three other dudes that are doing the same yeah, thing. Yeah. So. I know you've got a number of businesses, but tell us a bit about Abel. Yeah, it was one of the COVID babies. The real height of Dan's behavioral issues and weight gain and um, all of that really kicked in into COVID, right? Because the small amount of activity that he was doing through community programs got cut in COVID. Lockdowns occurred and it was challenging enough for people who didn't have cognitive issues, right? Like, you know, all oh, of us yeah. being locked down, Dan and his roommates, they didn't understand why they were being locked down, why they mm. weren't allowed outside. I never really thought about that, actually. No. Hard enough for... Yeah. And, you know, they had to take COVID tests daily. Oh, did they? So, yeah. you know, there's a period of time where Dan had people around him in PPE, swabbing him, and he was like, what's, what's, what's going on? What's going you know? on Like, it was a yeah, scene out of a movie. That. So more anxious eating, poor sleep patterns, all of these kind of things continue to reoccur. And yeah. I've never been a high level sports person, would have liked to have been, but I've always loved sport and I've always loved exercise. And yeah. because I know for a fact that when I do it, I feel better and I sleep better. And you naturally want to eat better if you are exercising as well, right? Yeah. And so the first thing I did was, again, I contacted the SIL and I'm like, all right, guys, you're in lockdown. I get that, but you've got a backyard, you've got a big lounge room. What's the plan? And they're like, well, what do you mean? 
Don't have like one. All, Don't have one. What yeah. are we doing? Like everybody's yeah. got to stay active and moving, but there was no plan. I'm like, well, that's easy. I'll just subscribe him to a mainstream fitness application and you guys can do this with him. What I didn't really take into account was how physically challenging it is to do mainstream applications, especially for somebody who is overweight, who has limited mobility and a cognitive disability when you have to put together all of the movements. And then also yeah. the people around him, if they weren't exercise savvy, they have to digest an app that's got a bunch of mainstream exercises on it and then make that palatable for someone with a cognitive disability to mm. then replicate. And that's really challenging, right? So yeah, absolutely. It, right? Yeah, so there's a full yeah. learning curve. Yeah. But the bigger issue was when I dug a bit deeper, I found there was nothing out there, literally nothing that was had solid digitalized content that was specific to people with a disability. You could go on YouTube and find random videos here and there or even state and federal governments, healthy and well-being and active websites was all was all focused to people without a disability. And it's like, right, well, what about the 4.3 million people who identify as having a disability? We just forget about these guys and they just go about their life. And mm. the unfortunate reality is when you look at statistics around preventable health and preventable death, it would make you think that, yes, we do just forget about that cohort of people or we don't put enough focus into their preventable health and health outcomes. Because well, tell me a bit about those stats. Is there a, bit, is there a massive gap? Is there between people with cognitive disabilities like for, the, and their life expectancy and the normal average. Yeah, it's, it's around yeah. 50 years old is the average life expectancy for someone with a cognitive disability. And my view and one of the main reasons for that is my nephew will never look at himself and think I'm unhealthy, I'm overweight, I need to exercise. Yeah. He will take his shirt off with his big guts out, he'll flex his guns and he's the happiest man in the world, you yeah. know, like, yeah. and that's awesome. I never want him to change that. But yeah. that is where the responsibility morally and ethically is imparted then on the people around him to go, you do look awesome, buddy, and you live the best life that you want, but we still need to get you moving a little bit more. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And that's, that's where the idea for Able Digital Wellness came from was because I then went, we need to have access to content for support workers that positively assists them to get people moving, to get people with a disability moving more. Yeah. Because 42% of adults with a disability rate their health as poor or fair. So our journey then, because again, I wasn't from a necessarily a training or a fitness or an exercise physiology background was to take an idea and find the right people to help me bring it to life. And, you know, we spent a lot of time then working with Griffith University and the Hopkins Center for Research and a number of disability advocates to make sure that the content we were producing was not only relative, but it was going to actually have positive outcomes. So now support workers can get content where you have exercises for individuals in a wheelchair, individuals with a cognitive disability, with good mobility. It has dietary advice. It has recipe suggestions, mental wellness content, yoga, all of those kind of things. And at the moment, it's really designed for support staff and their clients to really pick and choose what's going to be best for you, right? And the idea is about upskilling the support. So a lot of the content that we provide is short form because we want the support staff to read it and go, oh, okay, so they are the five core food groups. So now Dan's never going to remember what those are, but every time he goes to that fridge as a support worker, I want you to go, hey, hey, Dan, grab me a fruit and show me what a fruit is or show me what protein is or show me what dairy is or do you understand what a grain is? And then every time he's going to eat food, whether it's in the community, at home or we're shopping, let's try and think of what those five core food groups are. Because then if me as a support worker understands that, I can offer healthier choice and control for him. Because again, if we can get to a point where everybody around that individual is focusing on meeting activity levels, eating a bit healthier, we know that sleeping patterns will improve. We know that if sleeping patterns improve, that you wake up happier. If you wake up happier, staff around you are happier. If they're happier, you're happier. 
Mm. And then all of a sudden you have this more cohesive environment where we're building better relationships between residents and staff and we reduce churn, but importantly, it's just a happier environment. You've done that with Dan in mind, but there's thousands of Dans out there. How's that going? That you know, now you're rolling it out. We're definitely at a point now where our Product is still far from where we want it to be, I think is the best way to put it, but it's in the market, it's changing lives, and that's all we can ask for. We see a lot of activity reports that are, hey, you know, we've done this with Dan today, here's some photos, we went out into the community, or he did some exercise, or here's an example of the cooking, or he's just cleaned his room, or even down to we're having some issues with him drinking ginger beer for breakfast again, and we need your help. But I get a lot of- So you're getting that, you're getting, you get that feedback. Yeah, I get that information. You just log in and get that feedback. Yeah, it just comes straight through as an automated uh, email. Automated, okay. This Um, is what Dan's up to. Yeah, so every time they produce an activity report, that comes through to me and and I get to see that, right? Because I don't like going to Dan's sill and and not because I don't like the environment, but because he has three other roommates who have cognitive disability who don't know me and that's their space. I don't want to intrude on that. But we all live a busy life as well, so I don't get to see Dan every single day. But this is a way for me to really stay in touch and see that all the good things that are occurring and that he is working towards better outcomes. It's massive, mate. It really is. I mean, you know, having that reporting mechanism, our son, he's he goes to different, he's not in a cell, but, you know, he goes to hubs. And I often wonder, what does he do? What, what do you do during the day? And, you know, some of them will sometimes reluctantly fill out an exercise book. And quite often they'll go to pick him up and it's done in the last couple of minutes. They go, oh, shit, yep. Murray's here. We better fill in the <laughs> book. You know? And you just get a really brief sort of overview. And he's been there six, seven hours. Because yeah. Fred's got to, if you, if you let him, he'll just bloody walk around in circles. But if you engage him in things and sort of push him along, love he, it. he loves it. And that's that ability with your system to potentially match the skills of the workers and the personalities and their character traits to the client is massive. Dan's very similar, right? Where if you engage with him and you go, what do you want to do? Or even I'm going to go and do this. Do you want to do it with me? Yeah. All he wants is camaraderie and engagement. And you could literally say, we are now going to go down here and shovel cow manure, but you and I are going to do it together. Do you want to come? He'd be like, Mm. hell yeah, I want to come because I get to do it with someone. And as long as they're having fun at the same time, he'll do just about anything. And I think people lose sight of that very easily to go, you know, we have to have a really regimented format of A, B, and C. It's great to do that. But at the end of the day, it is Mm. all about the engagement with that individual. Because Mm. if you just genuinely enjoy being around them, then that's when they will live their best life. Mm. Outside developing ABLE, how do you reckon it's this whole life experience with Dan for you, how do you reckon it's changed you? Oh, I actually, I couldn't, not only me, right, but my entire family and my entire group of really close friends around me. Because again, if you're not exposed to disability or people with disability, Mm. you don't give it another thought. And that's- You don't. People aren't bad because they don't. You don't think about child sex abuse either unless you've been exposed to it Mm. because you just kind of don't want to, right? Mm. And I understand Mm. that. So for me, having grown up with Dan and supporting him in the way I do now has definitely given me a lot of resilience, (laughs) trainings. That's for sure. But at the same time, it's really educated my kids on what disability is about. And my my kids are four and eight and and 10. And my daughter, when she goes to Big Dub to buy a Barbie, will buy a wheelchair Barbie and have no problem with that. And her friends will go, what have you got one of them for? It's like, well, why wouldn't I have one? Because it's second Mm. nature to her, right? Mm. But it's that Mm. next generation that we need to continue to educate that disability is fine. Because I I talk a lot, I'm on um, the board of the Inclusive Futures team at Griffith Uni, and we talk a lot about what should disability look like in the world. And the reality is it shouldn't look like anything. It just Mm. should be a natural part of who we all are, right? But Mm. Mm. until people accept disability 
as nothing different to us to a degree, mm. then you, you kind of get what I'm trying to say. Like, I mean, yeah, no, I do, I do. I that's do. where it's changed my outlook on life is disability isn't this separate thing to me. It is all mm. but one. And why should Dan die younger because he has a disability? Why should, why should? We should just all be afforded the same opportunities. And now my children look at that and they go, well, how come Dan's unhappy at the moment with where he's living, Dad? Why shouldn't he be allowed to be happy? And I'm like, you're right, darling. Why should he be unhappy? And then my friends around me who have nobody in their circle of friends that have a disability, they understand Dan for his his outwardness and they get his quirks. And when he arrives at the kids' soccer game and he runs through the field and he's loud, there's a big proportion of people that kind of go, who is this dickhead? Because Dan doesn't look like he has a disability. Mm. And there's a whole other proportion of people that go, look at Danny boy having a great time because they mm. know him and appreciate him for who he is. So that's, you know, it's changed me to have way open, more open thought on what life in general should be like for people, full stop. So the stuff you're doing, mate, I mean, it's really, it's seriously, it's, it's powerful stuff. So what would you say then to the dads out there who might not have your drive and your business experience and your natural, I'm going to change the world attitude? What would you say, I mean, in terms of changing their world and the world of their kids on a, on yeah. a smaller basis, but they all have a ripple effect? Absolutely. I think I think everyone has the ability to have a ripple effect in whatever way they choose to, right? And you don't need to completely change the course of your life and sell your businesses and start a new industry and off you go, right? Like you don't have to be- We don't, be, you know, we don't all need to be, we can't all be Scott Chapman. No, you know? But I, I think the really important thing for anybody out there is to go, if you bring a small group of people around you and make them understand your world, and understand the challenges that you have, challenges that we as family members of a person with a disability face, I believe are similar to everyday challenges that other people face to a degree, right? They just differ in their complexity. So I think that the more we openly talk about it, the more people who don't get exposed to disability as much as we do become more familiar with it. And that's how we build an inclusive environment, right? So as a father of somebody with a disability, you should always try and talk to people around the joys, absolutely the joys, but also the challenges that you face and get different viewpoints on it. And that might be hard sometimes mm. because people will never get it. The more we talk about it and the more we make it less of a taboo subject, and this is the crazy things that my nephew can do sometimes, but this yeah. is the joy that he brings to our lives. Whether you're an entrepreneurial person that wants to change the world or not, the more people that understand what the sector is and what somebody with a disability's life looks like through the lens as well, the more empathy they can have with it, the more they will then talk to somebody else about it. And then that's how we break down barriers, in my opinion. The average person needs to know what it is like for somebody with a disability. Being inclusive isn't just having a ramp somewhere or giving someone cash. It's got to be a mixture of everything. And I think the more the average person who isn't exposed to disability gets exposed to it, when they build their restaurant or they build their cinema or they build their whatever it is, they will think more laterally about what it is that they're doing. And communication's the key on that. So dads out there, just keep talking to people about what the world should look like through your eyes for your son or daughter or whomever it may be. Yeah, be the best advocate you can. 100%. Yeah, yeah. No, it's good advice, mate. It's really good advice. Part of the reason for this podcast is really to provide a voice for men who've been on a journey. And quite often men are pretty reluctant to talk about stuff. Mm. But I think normalising it is what you're saying, isn't Big it? Big time. Normal it normalising disability. Part of a general conversation, right? Yeah. Like in, and until yeah. it is part of a general conversation in any aspect that you want it to be, it will the stigma will never be broken down. Dan, again, like he has a tendency to stare and he stares at females in particular. He's a 22-year-old with much less cognitive ability, so he's got a whole range of internal emotions going on at the moment. But the average person won't give him the time of day when he's staring to stop and go, 
I wonder if there's more to this person than what I'm seeing right now. The average person would judge and go, what are you looking at, mate? Mm. And that breaks my heart because there's yeah. no, yeah, yeah. there's no malice in what he's doing. That's just who he is. Yeah. But again, until it is normalized and broken down to a point, Dan's going to always be. Instead of taking that on face value, you, you, what you're saying is the more that people understand that there are people out there with disabilities, hang on, maybe Dan, that looking beyond yeah. You know, yeah. Dan staring at my girlfriend. And he's also not objectifying when he's staring. He might just be intrigued by something. Yeah. Because the average person, once they then realize, Dan, oh, sorry, mate, I didn't realize that, you know, mm. he was a bit special. It's yeah, like, yeah, yeah, but you shouldn't have had me to tell you that, right? You should yeah. just accept him for whoever he is. Yeah. Um, Dan got denied buying a six pack of beer at the bottle shop the other day because they thought he was drunk. And I'm like, mate, he's got a cognitive disability. And then the person behind the counter thought it was a great idea to have a stab at me for allowing him to have a beer anyway. Because he shouldn't be drinking. He's got a disability. Cool. Thanks for your thought process, buddy. <laughs> yeah, that great thought process there. Um, you know, but you know. As a young bloke who just wants to have a beer. That's right. Know, yeah. And Dan yeah. has three sips of a beer and he won't drink anymore. But yeah. the, the, again, the point I'm getting at is there's more and more technology and businesses being created out there now to try and do what it is that we just spoke about, right? And that's make people aware, break down the stigma, normalize disability so that people like my nephew have the ability then to to live the same life that you and I get afforded. There's still a long journey ahead, isn't there? So far. <laughs> but mate, the stuff, you're, the stuff you're doing, they're the things that are making a massive difference. Yeah, for you, Scott, what's the future? Obviously, Able's going to go global. Yep. Is that, the, is that know, the plan? 100%. So we, uh, we've just finished a state rollout with Queensland government. We've got a number of other large-scale providers who are either using or piloting or about to engage in that. So for me, you know, I would love our product or a product like mine, like I, I don't care if it's mine or something else, but something like that to be mandated into every disability house in the country. Preventative health should be the primary focus. So for yeah. me, my perfect world is advocating for people in whatever way that I can and in more of a loud, boisterous, podcasty kind of way, you know, like what are the things that we need to challenge? What do we need to break down? I'm stoked to be working with Griffith University and the Hopkins Center for Research in their Inclusive Futures team because what that whole sector is built around is how do we normalize disability and how do we create an environment and a world that doesn't differentiate? That's what our remit is in there and that's mm. super exciting for me and that's the kind of stuff that I want to work on. The biggest challenge there is you can't pay your mortgage and feed your kids being an advocate and being a voice sometimes. So I, I want this business to do what I believe it can so it can help everybody who needs it so that can then afford me the opportunity to continue to help those who can't as well. Probably a silly question, but have you had some interest from overseas and have you put the feelers out? Obviously we you, haven't yet. You you've know, researched and seen there's nothing like it. Yeah. Or, or do you just want to get it right first here? We need to get it right yeah. first here because the yeah. model's very different here to globally, right? Where one of very few countries that has anything even remotely like the NDIS. The joy for people in Australia is if you have an NDIS plan, there's a 99% chance you have funding approval already for our product. It's super cheap at 66 bucks a month. Not that this is a telly, no, a telly no, no, infomercial. No, no. Um, but our, our big thing in Australia is every time we get a paid member, we donate a free membership to somebody without an NDIS plan because it's about servicing the whole population rather than just those who can afford it. And again, we're super lucky in Australia because of the NDIS. There's also more than double the amount of people with a disability in the country who don't have the NDIS mm. and they won't get it. I don't know the exact number, but I know that it was around like 400,000 or something was the amount of people that when they first were modeling the NDIS, they thought that's where we will get to. It's at 615,000 now yeah, with a yeah. forecasted rate of growth of 10% over the next 10 years, right? Yeah. So, you know, where does it stop? 
the challenge that we have though, we know as a country that the NDIS is never going to service everybody who has a disability in this country. Like we just know that it won't. But when you have then again, individuals who don't have access to any kind of funding, what do we do for that, that group of people? So the idea originally behind giving one away to somebody who doesn't have a plan is because then if we can stop them from getting themselves into a preventable health issue or preventable death, and they're not going to have to try and find money for medication or medical services or things along those lines. Like when my nephew was growing up pre-NDIS, you know, mum and dad were poor. They were always poor and they worked really, really hard. They were really, really good people, but they never had any money. Mm. So when they took Dan on as a kid, um, <laughs> it's even more significant. Oh, I, I still yeah. remember to this day, like my first thought was you can't do it. Like you have to give him up because you guys are flat out feeding yourselves, let alone taking on somebody who has a significant disability. How do you even, how do you, how do you afford to do this? Right? Like there was no support for this and they did it. They just found a way to do it. So you don't have to change the world tomorrow, but if you can, if you're a disability organization, then you should find a way to be channeling some form of your effort or profit or resource or whatever it is that you do to people who don't have an NDIS plan. Because guess what? The majority of those people don't have a job either. They're on a disability support pension, which is pittance. They live in an environment that's not fit for purpose and they'll be stuck there for the majority of their life. So what is it can you do for them that's going to potentially positively impact them, offer benefiting off an NDIS scheme? You should try and find a way to do something. You know, you said earlier you've got a, a group of mates that sound like they've embraced Dan and speaking with, you know, you know, blokes. And again, this was probably part of the catalyst for this podcast, but there is a disconnect out there and maybe it's a generational thing. You know, I've obviously got a few you know, years on you. Any suggestions for men to, you know, to fill that void, to get more connected or... As in more connected around more talking connected about to, that? More connected to men on, you know, on a similar journey or being open to and opening themselves up to talk about stuff. I mean, have you got any... And it's, that's, you know, I think that, that's, that's a challenge in itself, whether you have a, a sibling or family member with a disability or not. You know, like you said earlier, men just aren't great at communicating full stop. I would, I'm, you can find me on LinkedIn. You can find me anywhere. If you, anyone wants to reach out to me and go, hey, I want to just talk to someone who's got a similar journey that I've been on, then by all means, find me and chat to me. You know, I'm really open about that. And yeah. I think that we should all try and be, you know, like. Well, I think you've made a good point there. If we're all, if we all became like that, you know, let's. It's spot on. I mean, you've got the community you know. already, Mary. You're building a podcast that's mm. centered around men at the moment who have all been on a similar journey. And I would hazard a guess that at some point in time, every one of us unintentionally felt embarrassed about our situation and an environment that we were in and outcomes and how do I and. You know, do I want to take Dan with me to the soccer today because my son's in a new soccer team and they don't know him and he can be very out there sometimes and are yeah. all these people going to go, who is this guy and why have you brought him? Or, yeah. you know, yeah. you know, my, my, my word to you would be stuff him. You know, you take yeah. him and you embrace it and you enjoy it and really get to a point where you don't really care what the other person thinks. You know, if the person mm. next to you is going, well, you know, that person should, well, good on your buddy, yeah. on your bike, you yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. And for me, that was, was a challenge because I sometimes felt like Dan would unintentionally encroach on my kid's exposure in sport or, you know, we have a father-son yeah. camping trip that we go on every single year with a group of dads and their kids. And, and the first two years, I didn't take Dan. And I really beat myself up about that, but I didn't take him because I didn't want it to be uncomfortable for Huddy either. My son at that time was eight years old and I knew that the fathers who were there are all wonderful people and the kids were all wonderful people. But if they hadn't been exposed to somebody like Dan before either, does that put Huddy in a situation where it's confronting and then they pick on him about having a weird uncle? And so that was very difficult for me. And 
Would you do it now? Well, I then reached out to the dads before the last one and I said, hey, guys, I want to bring Dan. And they're like, 100%, mate, why wouldn't you bring him? And I explained how I felt and I didn't want Dan to feel uncomfortable and I didn't want you guys to feel uncomfortable with me bringing him because he can take himself to the toilet and he can can eat. Like He's he's no different to you or I. He just has Mm. a few quirks kind of thing. Mm. Um, But the biggest thing was I didn't want your kids to unintentionally judge him, which then made my son's father camping trip not be a fun one. And that was really a confronting thing, I suppose, for me to say to them because they never kind of thought, oh, wow, like we didn't think that you would think our kids would be like that. And it wasn't a swipe at their kids. It's just a swipe at, again, generalized population, right? So the joy was they'd all spoken to the boys and went, hey, listen, Scotty's nephew's coming and he's different in ways to you and I, but he's no different in ways to you and I. So you'll treat him like you would anybody else. But where the dads are sitting around the fire having a beer, Dan's going to be on his push bike bombing a hill with you boys. And we want you Mm. to embrace that with him. Mm. He went and had the best time. (laughs) Mm. And um, it it made me cry because Mm. he had so much fun. And I sat there and went, you know, for two years, I deprived him of that because I was conscious and worried about what you were worried about. But all I needed to do was talk to the people around me and go, I've got to include him. Why wouldn't I include him? And they mm. were all very welcoming. And if you have mm. people in your circle that who then aren't welcoming, mm. you're out of the circle, buddy. You yeah, you're out of, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that was yeah. so important for Dan. It was relatively important for us dads, but it was so much more important for those kids who were all eight to go, how cool is Huddy's uncle? How- yeah, yeah, yeah. Because if they yeah, get introduced yeah. young enough that it's all the norm, yeah, yeah. as they get older, mate, then it is the norm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, that journey of, of not caring about what people say, I've been on that journey with Fred. You know, it's funny, I, like we go to the beach a fair bit and he loves the beach. He's not mad on the water, but he loves just, you know, dancing around in the sand and doing his thing. And now I just, you know, if people stop and stare, and which they don't usually anyway, yeah. but I go, oh, well, fuck him. Well, yeah. Pardon the French. You know 100%. I mean? um, and you've got to get to that point. I'll have my daughter, my you know, 17-year-old daughter. I mean, it, it happened recently down at Coolangatta, and she said, oh, Dad, he was dancing a bit close to some you know, young fellas playing soccer, right, just kicking a little soccer ball around. She's 17 and, you know, self-conscious and yep. all that stuff. Dad, you've got to move. You've got to get Fred away from those. I said, well, yeah, what for? She said, oh, what about, if, what about if he gets in the middle of them kicking the soccer ball? I said, they don't, they don't care. You know, yeah. I'll probably ask him if he wants to kick. Yep. I didn't. I didn't do anything. I said, if you if you want to go down and, you know, obviously she's a bit, uh, three good looking young, you know, young <laughs> fellas about 19 years old. But And so it's that lesson too of, of teaching your kids and getting them to, as that story you just related, to embrace them and understand them and go, geez, you know, Dan's a cool dude, you know, or Fred's a cool, you know. And they can and, have fun. And stuff what people think. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's a hard, it's a hard place to get to though. It sometimes. is a hard it's... place to get to, but I know exactly what you're talking about because I, and suddenly Probably only been the last couple of years that I've got there, to be honest, or maybe a few more than that. But um, but when you really embrace it, it's yeah, a no, nice just feeling. Well, no, stuff it, you know. <laughs> Fred's who he is, you know. Yeah. That's great advice, mate, to, for the blokes out there. And um, the stuff you're doing is really incredible, Scott. Yeah, thank you, mate. I'll take my hat off to you, honestly. It's uh, you know, need more blokes like you in the world. So. Well, we've, we've got a lot of work to to still do, but yeah, I hope I can get to the heights that I want it to and that I want to. And you know, I'm sure make, you will, mate. I'm sure change. you will make change. Thanks, Scott. Thank you. Thanks for coming in, mate. It was really good. I appreciate chat. it. You're a good man. Very good man. Thanks, Murray. Thanks, Scott. It's been an incredible chat with Scott Chapman today. His bond with his nephew, Dan, reminds us of the significant difference one person's life can make. Scott's effort with Able Digital Wellness highlight how personal passion can lead to massive changes, creating spaces that make everyone feel included and valued. If Scott's story struck a chord with you, 
or made you think of someone you know, please spread the word, share this episode, subscribe to A Few Good Men, and if you can, drop us a review. Each story we share here is another step towards understanding and a more inclusive world. Thanks again to our sponsor, Help Enterprises, a social enterprise helping people with disabilities lead fulfilling and independent lives. Next time on A Few Good Men, Bill Savage opens up about the roller coaster of emotions that came when his son James was diagnosed with cerebral palsy. We didn't really think about long-term stuff. The short-term battles were enough and the initial years were probably pretty awful. It's a bit like that story about the frog in the saucepan of water, it's slowly getting warmer. You just don't know what you're, what you're really into and by the time you do, it's too late anyway. I'm Murray Jones. Thanks for joining us on A Few Good Men. To keep the conversation going, please connect with us on our website, where you'll find resources, stories from fellow fathers and caregivers, and ways to interact with our growing community. Visit afewgoodmen.com.au. A Few Good Men, sponsored by Help Enterprises, a social enterprise helping people with disabilities lead fulfilling and independent lives. A Few Good Men is a Welcome Change Media production.